0: an author by the name of Sky Jethani, talks about uh, two leaders and paints a picture of contrasting views of greatness for us. One of the leaders lifted an entire nation in a time of great despair. He mobilized his people against unimaginable odds, and it came through his clear vision and through his inspiring passion. He launched a movement that has impacted literally everyone on the face of the Earth. He set in motion an industrial and scientific revolution that produced the world's first computer, the first jet airplane, began human exploration into space, and unlocked the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the world has, in some form, been impacted by this leader. And when he died at the age of 56, Everyone on the planet knew his name. The other leader lived actually during the same era. Uh, The two men died just 21 days apart, but their lives were very different. At the height of his influence, the second leader just ran a school of 100 students. He wrote a few books, but wasn't widely regarded. He was beloved by his family and friends and seen as someone who was faithful and intelligent. But at the time of his death, almost no one knew his name. Most considered his life unfulfilled. And even the leader himself saw his own life's work as having been largely unfulfilled. And the question he poses for us is, which leader's strategies would you like to learn from? Who would you seek to emulate? If these two leaders were putting on a conference, which one would you sign up for? which one would you seek to uh, learn from? If you chose the first leader, you may have already uh, <laughs> uh, realized you chose Adolf Hitler. Uh, and it is his, uh, uh, his version of, uh, of greatness that some people uh, still seek to emulate. If for some reason you chose the second leader, you chose uh, a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer a German pastor who was persecuted, tortured, and eventually killed for his faith and his relentless opposition to the Nazi regime. World War II taught us some stark lessons about greatness, about power, authority, and uh, the path that we might follow in. But it seems that those lessons are quickly being forgotten. We have a natural desire for respect and significance. The The hunger that we have in one sense for greatness is uh, a part of what it means to be human. We want esteem. We want acceptance. We want to know that we matter, that we made a difference. The problem is that today, politics and uh, Business and celebrity culture often give examples of greatness that are damaging to us, that are toxic in their approach. Our world's definition of greatness today hasn't moved on far, far beyond the vision of greatness that existed under Hitler himself. And so today, as we consider uh, the Bible's path towards a life of greatness It's with an understanding that it's an area that we struggle with as a culture. That it's something that doesn't come naturally to us. And in fact, many of the options that are put before us are not helpful uh, pictures or directions at all. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We have been uh, studying through this book and we have seen uh, through... Through the Apostle Paul, a man who imprisoned for his faith, waiting on, uh, on a sentence before, before Caesar that will determine his life or his death. And in the face of that sentencing, he has shown for us a picture of inextinguishable joy. Uh, we have seen his uh, somehow unflappable uh, hope and uh, joy in his Savior. And this morning he paints a picture for us of uh, a path towards true greatness. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, I'll read from verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. God's word here presents a very specific path to greatness, and it is the path of humility. But it's interesting how it presents this path, because the passage does not just say, be humble, and be really humble, and try harder to be humble. It gives help for this life of humility that does not come naturally to us and uh, which, in our own strength, is often beyond us. It points to Christ's blessings as a fuel for our humility. And so it's there that we'll start. Before we get into uh, how Christ's blessings fuel our humility, it's important for us to stop and confirm what we're talking about when we say the word humility. Because humility, as it's often used today, means something very different than what it means here and what it originally meant. Uh, Last year, Carino Chicano wrote an article for the New York Times entitled, Calling Yourself Humbled Doesn't Sound as Humble as It Used to Be. She said, Lately, it's pro forma, possibly even mandatory, for politicians, athletes, celebrities and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor awarded, prize won, job offered, record broken, pound lost, shout out received, like copped, and thumb upped. She's talking about the social media phenomenon of writing posts like this. I'm so humbled that I married a model, amassed a great fortune, lost 20 pounds, and still manage to look half my age. Hashtag blessed. When we use the word humbled like that, it's actually meaning the exact opposite of the word that we're talking about in the scriptures today. That is not exactly humbled. Really what we're doing is advertising our greatness and, and, and trying to have other people join in the celebration of it under the hashtag of humbled. So that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, Jesus uh, Jesus warned about this. He, He warned about doing things, even good things, in order to be seen by men, in order for people to see us as better than we were. He said that when we do that, we will often actually forfeit God's blessings. Proverbs is, is uh, even more clear on this. He says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. And it's a reminder to us that often humbled is, a little, is, is little more than proud and a reminder to us of our own need for true humility in a world where uh, that often is, is uh, beyond us. Now, we start to get a picture of true humility in verse 2, and it's a humility that expresses itself in unity in the midst of diversity. Paul writes in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love in full accord and of one mind. He's, he's piling on adjectives that are pointing all in the same direction, right? Uh, Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. it's It's an appeal for unity. And they're beautiful words, except if you've ever tried to put them into practice. And then they're hard words. They're hard words because we're all so different. We think so differently. We speak differently. We have different backgrounds and assumptions and presumptions. And so this kind of unity often escapes us. It's often difficult for us. And if we're going to express this kind of unity, we need humility. The humility to listen to one another. The humility to compromise. Humility to be flexible. The the humility to not assume that I'm right and you're wrong. The humility that says, maybe I didn't see this the way I ought to have. Maybe, Maybe you have something to contribute that I haven't considered. He's talking about that kind of humility. Then in verse 3, the charge is to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And we can be ambitious to get something done. Nothing wrong with that. And Jesus, in a sense, had a relentless ambition to get to the cross. But it becomes selfish ambition when it's my agenda that's all that matters. And my agenda is all about me. That, that's when it becomes selfish ambition. And, and it's, it, it's this call to examine ourselves and examine our ambitions, examine our drive, and ask where it comes from and where others fit into it, and more importantly, where God is in the midst of it. In verse 4, he says, "...to look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others." We're called to put other people in our agenda. To consider other people's needs, not just our own. Because our tendency is to have this tunnel vision for what I want. He says, no, you put other people in your schedule. Other people on your agenda. Make them a part of your priority. The human tendency is not to do that. The human tendency is me first. It's my agenda. Grab the spotlight. Force your own opinion. And it's so strong that without help, we would never be able to to even strive for the kinds of things that Paul is talking about here. And that's why the chapter starts with that help. If you look at verse 1, there Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and then he appeals for their humility. And the implication is, Surely you have experienced these things. Surely you have received, surely you have tasted these things. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you say, actually, I I haven't. I I, I mean, I I read the words, but that's not my experience. I have not received these blessings from Jesus Christ. Then then the appeal to you is not to just try and stir up some man-made humility Anyway, the appeal to you is to go to Christ for the blessings that he promises us here. To look to him for the fullness out of which we may pursue a life of greatness, a life of humility. For the rest of you, if the the passage is asking us about our experience, is there any encouragement in your life because of what Jesus has done for you? Do you know any comfort from the knowledge of a God who loves you? Does that bring comfort in your life? Have you tasted of that comfort? Have you experienced strength and reassurance from the knowledge that God's Spirit indwells you? You're not alone. You have a power that is not your own. Does that give you reassurance? Does it give you comfort? Does it give you strength? Has the compassion and sympathy of God moved you? Knowing the God of all comfort in the midst of difficulty, is that meaningful to you? Has that brought reassurance in your life? And he says, if you have tasted of any of these things, and surely if you have put your trust in Christ, you have. Then he says those blessings were for a purpose. The purpose was not just for your own blessing and your own comfort, as important as those were. The purpose was that you would live in a new way. That you would have power to follow Christ in a path of humility into a life of true greatness. When we've experienced the love and fullness from God, we don't need to live our lives still craving after the kinds of things that our world does. We don't need the applause anymore because we have received the acceptance of one whose opinion truly matters. We don't need the, the, to be clamoring for my power and my attention and my interests because we have met a Savior who put aside those things for us. And the appeal is that it is in those blessings that we have power to live a new life. So the path to true greatness begins by letting Christ's blessings fuel our humility. It also involves letting Christ's example inspire our humility. Because often part of the problem is we haven't seen it. We've just not been exposed to to a real life example of this kind of humility. We've seen lots lots of the other examples. We've seen hashtag humbled, but we haven't seen biblical humility. And so Christ's example is held up for us as an inspiration for our humility. Verse 5 here calls us to imitate Jesus in this. We're to have this mind among yourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. It's ours. We can have this mind that is Christ's because of our faith in him, because of our union with him. One of the ways that Jesus modeled humility for us was by the way he gave up his privileges all the things that he set aside for us. Verse 6 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now here the form doesn't mean the shape. He wasn't in the shape of God. Uh, The form here means the the nature, the exact uh, uh, nature of of something. And the phrase form of God in verse 6 is contrasted in verse 7 with form of a servant. The one who had the exact nature of a servant then took on the nature, uh, the one who had the exact nature of God took on the exact nature of a servant. He set aside his privileges. He set aside his prerogative, put aside his glory and came as a servant is probably a a deliberate contrast here with Adam that's intended. Because you'll remember that when Adam sinned in the garden, it wasn't just because he thought that fruit looked like it tasted awfully good. And and maybe it did. But it was that in tasting that fruit, he would be like God, knowing good and evil. And so in, in Adam, you have someone who didn't possess divinity, grasping at it, trying to take something which didn't belong to him for his own selfishness. But in Jesus Christ, you have someone who does possess that divinity, and he's not grasping at it. He is willingly putting it aside out of love for us through his own humility. The fact that Jesus gave up his divine privileges is, is incredible. It's an amazing thing that he did, but for me, it's not the most remarkable thing. Verse 7 adds that he was born in the likeness of man. This is talking about how people perceived him, how people saw him. He was just born in the likeness of man. So what this tells us is, unlike all of those medieval paintings of Jesus you've seen with the bright golden halos around him, he didn't look any different. He just looked like any other first-century Jew. He didn't. He didn't have a label on them that said, "Don't forget that I'm the the Son of God, the King of the Universe." He just came in the likeness of men. And verse eight says that he was found in human form. When people came up to him, they just said, "Hey, he's a he's a guy. He's 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 just another one of us." Didn't have anything. Advertising his greatness. This is important because when Drake goes into a hospital and he does some just he visits someone who is who is sick and, and in great need. We all say that that's a very generous thing that someone like Drake has done. We we recognize that someone who who could be spending his time doing all kinds of things, has taken time out of his busy schedule for uh, someone in need. And we rightly recognize that's a, that's a humble thing. That's a gracious thing. The thing is, when Drake does it, it gets headlines. People, people write newspaper stories about it. He gets attention because everybody recognizes this is Drake and he's done this, this thing. Even though he's so great and famous, he has stooped to visit someone in the hospital. Again, great thing that he's done, but it's different than what Jesus did. Because when Jesus did what he did, he was not recognized. They'd, when he acted like a servant, he was treated like a servant. People just saw him as a servant. And, and, and it, it was so different as a result. He wasn't tweeting about how blessed he was to have calmed the storm and fed the, fed the 5,000. He didn't, he didn't generate a lot of huge publicity because of, uh, because of that. And often after his miracles, what he would do is say, don't tell anyone about this. It just, let's just keep this under the radar. He not only served in humility, but he was seen in humility. Probably the greatest gauge of humility is the degree and object of the sacrifice, I think. For instance, when, when Oprah gives everyone in her audience a new car, like, it's an amazing thing, right? It, it rightly is recognized as an amazing act of generosity. It really is. But after having given everyone in the audience a new car, it's not like Oprah's got to start clipping coupons to kind of get by anymore. Like, it hasn't really taken a huge dent out of her bottom line. She's still, you know... Very, very, very rich. Hard to spend all of, all of her money, right? And she's done it for her followers and her fans. She has an audience of people who, who love her and, and, and uh, admire her. And again, not taking anything away from the generosity of the act is just different than what we're talking about here with Jesus. When, when Jesus uh, did what he did, verse 8 says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then it says, even death on a cross. It's hard to describe the horror of the cross. It was deliberately designed as the most cruel and lengthy uh, means of executing someone that they could think of. Unimaginable pain. And yet... The physical side of the pain wasn't the worst part of it. It was the the emotional toll that it would bear. Stripped naked and bloodied before a jeering crowd, it was the ultimate humiliation. When we talk about cost, what greater cost could someone bear? And yet, then when we look at the object of that sacrifice the object of the cost, we have to say he paid the cost for his enemies. He paid the cost for crowds that were jeering him, for soldiers that were torturing him. Even as we look at his inner circle, we look at a group of people who betrayed him, denied him, or abandoned him. If it were you or me, at what point would we have said, look, I don't see anyone worthy here. I'm out. I'm not paying this kind of price for these kind of people. And yet he went to the cross anyway. And that is a picture of humility that's not only being lifted up and saying, stand back for a moment and marvel at the humility of Jesus Christ. we, We are being told to do that, but it's not just that. That example of Jesus Christ is being held up for us to say, now that you have seen him, now you realize the path that I'm calling you to live. Now you realize what I'm talking about when I say humility. And I say, humble yourselves and have this mind which is ours in Christ Jesus. Interestingly here, that we get a, a, a picture that this path to true greatness, a path to humility isn't just by saying, be humble, be humble, be humble. It's not by putting sticky notes on your mirror and say, remember to be humble. Or thinking about your own humility. Interestingly, it is the humility of Jesus Christ that is lifted up up for us to focus on. It is when we focus not on our own humility, but on his humility, that we are changed. We know that in part because, verses, depending on the translation of Bible that you have, verses 6 to 11, you'll see that they're actually broken out in poetic form. The original, uh, the original language here is written in poetry. We don't know whether this was an early Christian hymn or just a carefully crafted poem, but it is, uh, it is at least that. And everybody knows whether it was a hymn or just a careful poem we we know that the purpose in writing it in poetry like this is it was meant to be thought upon. It was meant to be remembered, meditated on, focused on, repeated again and again in your mind. That this mind of Christ would be fixed in our minds and that as we behold His glory, we would be conformed to the likeness of it. And so Christ's Example is held up for us as a a means of inspiring our humility. Christ's blessings are put before to fuel our humility. But finally, Christ's exaltation is held up to motivate our humility. Jesus was lifted up. He was given great honor and authority. But it was given to him precisely because he was willing to lower himself precisely because he humbled himself. And again, Christ's exaltation is held up to motivate our own humility. Watch how this happens. Verse 9, if you read there it says, "Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name." You may have been hurt, you may have been told somewhere along the line when in the Bible you read therefore, you're supposed to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore, right? We were asked What's that pointing to? What's it telling us? What's the the question here that it's answering? And here, the therefore is to show the reason that the Father exalted Jesus. Why did the Father lift him up? Why did the Father give such, such authority? Give him the name that is above every other name? Why did he do that? The therefore tells you. It was because of the humility he showed particularly because of the humility he showed in his obedience to death on the cross in providing for our salvation by his dying as our substitute. The warning of the passage is that one day everyone will be humbled. It's interesting interestingly, be, because we've been talking all of this time and looking at this passage that talks about reasons that we should be humbled and the power to be humble and the appeal for us to pursue a path of greatness that comes through humility. But the passage ends by saying it doesn't really matter whether you respond to that invitation to humility or not. One day, in the final day, everyone will be humbled. Every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. Some will bow before him, having first humbled themselves before him in this life. They will bow before him in worship. His coming and his appearing will be in relief. His coming will come with a sense of joy, and and finally, the Savior has come, and people will bow in worship of their Savior. But not all will. Others will bow before him for another reason. Others who proudly resisted him in this life will bow before him in fear and dread. They will recognize that the version of greatness that they had given their lives to was in fact without anything great. It was void of true greatness. They will recognize that it had been their pride that had kept them from from recognizing Jesus Christ, from bowing before him, for giving him the glory that he was due. And on that day, the scripture says, that person will be humbled. Humbled before him, recognizing in fear and dread at the judgment that will now befall them, that yes, they too now see that Jesus Christ was the the Son of God. He was the Savior of the world. He was the one who had lived a perfect life of true greatness and whose appeals and invitations had been resisted through pride and a failure to, uh, to receive him. Many whom this world calls great will feel shame at what they had seen as accomplishments on that day. And many who humbly bore this world's shame for Jesus' sake will on that day be honored by the one whose opinion truly matters, be lifted up. They'll be lifted up by him in the same way that the Father lifted up the Son. So let's humble ourselves in faith and repentance before Jesus Christ. Let's respond to the one who gave his life that we might live a new life who serves us in humility that we might follow in a path of humility. Let's look to Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help. Our world gives a distorted picture of greatness, and often we don't have a lot of good role models. So thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his model of humility. Help us to follow him. Father, so often the problem with pride is that we don't see it. So give us eyes to see and give us ears to listen. And as we take time to focus on Jesus Christ, conform us into his image. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.